This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan, and that, of course, means you are listening to another episode of the Crowncast. And it's a Wednesday Crowncast, and it's a Wednesday Crowncast where, you know, sometimes we have one game to go over. Every now and then we have two games to go over. Weirdly, in this instance, we have one game and a penalty shootout to go over, but the penalty shootout was not from the same game. Bear with us. It's it it it's just weird sometimes. And here to be weird with me is Ewan. Hello, Ewan. Hello. Yes. Don't worry. It'll all make sense in uh, in due course. Don't worry. No, actually, <laughs> I do not promise things that will not happen. Do, <laughs> uh, as as the person who is who I, I guess has to back up the promises of the Crown Cast. What Ewan is saying is purely based on his own ability. Please do not expect this of us. We cannot make Charlotte FC make sense. Thoughts uh, so, are on my own, not those of my employers. <laughs> <laughs> but we are we are absolutely going to try you. And how you been, buddy? Yeah, all good. I mean, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned it uh, before we started recording the fact that it feels like a long time since we spoke, and I, I mentioned that potentially it's because a lot has happened since yep. we last spoke, since we uh, since we last recorded the pod. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's been a lot. But yeah, mostly positive uh, in terms of at least results-wise. So there we go. Yep, on on we go. I myself am set. I'm comfortable. I have my my bean juice. Uh, it's it's five twenty-four p.m. here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I am drinking my coffee because otherwise I will be asleep uh, because I am an addict. Uh, any 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 fun stuff here? Are you are you a coffee addict, Ewan? I don't know. To be fair, I think um, I think that's probably fair to say. <laughs> so I, yes, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I definitely am partial. I'm not too um, I, I'm not too fussy with it though. Like people are really into their coffee in terms of specifically this, specifically that. With me, just kind of get the beans, throw them in the cup, stir it, get the milk, everything like that. So I'm not that much, but I do kind of need it to operate. So yes. <laughs> yep. You know, I, I had somebody, I don't know whether they saw it online or whether they told me, but they said something quite brilliant. And they were like, I really thought I loved coffee. And it turns out I love creamer. And coffee is just the <laughs> delivery system for creamer. Uh, if it sounds like we are not particularly keen on talking about Charlotte FC versus Cruz Azul, it's because there wasn't that much to talk about until you get to the very, very end. Um, you and if you would do me the honor, I'm just going to sort of do a brief overview of Charlotte FC versus Cruz Azul. Is that all right with you? They, yeah, yeah. Take your time as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna go after this. I am going to do this overview in the exact same way it's presented as the important notes from the game in the timeline that you can find online. Are you ready for this? Kickoff, 8.40 p.m. Halftime, 0 <laughs> Substitution, three Substitution, uh, two players for Cruz Azul and a yellow card for Cruz Azul in the 60th minute. Substitutions, two players for Charlotte FC on the 69th and 70th minute. Yellow card for Cruz Azul in the 74th. Substitution, Ben Bender in, in the 80th. Extra time. Extra time, halftime. End of extra time, 0-0. Zero, zero. Oh, we're done. We did the game. That was, that was the whole thing. Uh, no, I, I really do think that the, the meat of what there is to talk about is the penalty shootout. It was a dramatic penalty shootout. Obviously, it wasn't exactly a killer game in and of itself. But if you would have told me, Ewan, that Andrew Privet, Kerwin Vargas, Ashley Westwood, Derek Jones, and Ben ben or Ben Bender and Carol Swiderski were going to go up and take six penalties, and two of them were going to be missed, how much money would you have lost when ultimately it's Ashley Westwood and Carol Swiderski that missed the two penalties? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the funny thing with with that as well is that not only could you say you know they're the two guys you'd bank on score. I think if you ranked the players in terms of how likely you would have them to score their penalties, the best penalties are that order reversed almost because Privet I think would be the guy who people would bank on say yeah if someone's going to miss, it would likely be him. 
And in my opinion, he had the best penalty out of everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, he actually he actually nailed his penalty. Yeah. I I feel like okay. So if I was going to rank these penalty takers, right? If I was just going to be like, here's the guys I expect to get it done versus the guys who have a fair shot, but I don't. You're right. Privet would probably be at the bottom for me, but I think I would start with Carroll because Carroll has that penalty technique that we've talked about in the past, where he watches the keeper and then goes the other way. And I I like that. I think Carroll has the technical ability to do it. Why he skied this ball? I, I think we were in the chat, and I don't remember who it was. It might have been you, Ewan, who uh, was kind enough to put into the chat that uh, Carol Swiderski sent that ball back to Poland. <laughs> was that <laughs> was that you? That wasn't me. Uh, yeah, no, no, that, that wasn't me. I would never be so mean about Swiderski. Come on. <laughs> it must have been, it must have been Michael then. It must have been Michael. Uh, yeah. But. I would. I expect Carroll to hit his. He's had a lot of good penalties for us. We're going to forgive him one sky ball. Uh, and then I would say Ashley Westwood. I would expect to make his penalty. And then right behind that, I would say Ben Bender. Uh, he Ben Bender has a finishing striking technique that I think is very good. And even if he doesn't have the experience yet, I think he has the technique to put the ball where he wants it. And if you put the ball in the right spot, it cannot be saved. After that, I'd probably say Kerwin Vargas just because Vargas isn't afraid of shooting at the goal, and he can put his foot through the ball. And then I would say Derek Jones. And then finally, obviously, Andrew Privet. Derek Jones and Andrew Privet both really looked calm and composed. I mean, <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about these guys? Um, well, obviously, we'll get onto the, the main point of, uh, of Kalina in this shootout, I'm sure. Um, oh, to, yeah, you know, 100%. Yeah, it's kind of it was his show, as it often is for goalkeepers and shootouts. But no, I just um, yeah, I think I think Vargas is no. Privet's penalty is my favourite, mm-hmm. but with a shout out to Kerwin Vargas's, which I do think is a close second. I really liked his yeah. penalty. I think, and we mentioned this before. I think when we've spoken about penalties, is that. Placement is important, but the height of a penalty is also important. I would sacrifice a little bit of placement in the corner for the ball to be absolutely along the ground. And that's a, that's a technique thing. And Vargas has mm-hmm. that technique down. He hits yep. it hard and low. And it's also placed pretty well as well. So, yeah, shout out to him also. Yep. Uh, the one that gets me is I am not a small human being. I am six foot three inches tall. I am 230 pounds. I'm outing myself on the internet here. I have met Derek Jones. Derek Jones terrifies me. Derek Jones is big and Derek Jones is strong. Derek Jones looks like if he decided to put his foot through something, it the uh, the what is what is mass times acceleration force equals force? Um, the, <laughs> the the force gained from the mass accelerating through the other mass would terrify me. So just just imagining being a keeper, watching watching Derek Jones run up to a ball and knowing that it could take my head off. Uh, I think I'm just going to enjoy watching him take penalties. We are going to move on. We do win this, and we win this because of ultimately Christian Kalina. I. I have long been a person who has talked up Christian Kalina because I believe he's a very good keeper. And I believe he is about as good as you're going to functionally get in the MLS. I think a lot of the stuff he's bad at is obvious. And the way Christian Latanzio plays shows off his highlight reel of problems. But I, I look around the league and I don't see keepers better than him. I see maybe a little bit better distribution maybe not as good a stop, uh, shot stopper. I, I don't I don't see another tier up of keeper from Christian Kalina in this league. And then one of the things that we've said is that I haven't really seen him save penalties. Don't know whether or not he can save penalties. He full on saves three penalties in this. And I'm not talking about like they missed three shots. He gets inside the brains of those Cruz Azul penalty takers and full saves three out of six penalties. Have you ever seen that, Ewan? Um, I mean, off the top of my head, hard to recall. I'm sure it has happened, but like you mentioned, it's 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 rare. It, it, it's certainly a rarity because 
you know, you think about everything that's factored into a shootout of basically a goalkeeper guessing of which way their player is going to go, and then actually having to save it once you get that right. Because if a penalty is too good to be saved, it's too good to be saved. I.e., the yep. Kerwin Vargas penalty where the keeper goes the right way, but the quality is just too good. Um, so, no, it's 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 certainly rare, and uh, certainly why he's the the hero of the of the shootout. I think the first one against, I believe it's Antuna is the first one. And he like runs up and stutter steps and Kalina just dead eyes him and doesn't move. And then he does it again. He runs up and stutter steps again. And Kalina's just like, I know you're not going to shoot it, buddy. Go ahead. And finally he goes and chips it. And Kalina just sits there waiting for it. Uh, really, it, it's the type of thing that can Christian Kalina do that again? Probably no. But does he deserve all of the credit for an amazing performance? Three big saves, 50% save percentage to to take Charlotte FC further into a cup run. Not just a regular match, but in, in a knockout stage. There's a lot of pressure there. And I think he deserves the credit. Um, uh, anything else? Do you want to heap on more love? Or should we move on to uh, another match that we win in Houston? Yeah, I think... Um... I think we're probably good to move on there. I I, I do want it. I mean, I, I have the history of being someone who's a bit sceptical of Kalina, so I just want to make it put on record that yeah, in in a shootout situation, it's its own beast, isn't it? And he's someone who you would back in that situation, not to save three out of six penalties. Maybe but those expectations are a little high, but certainly someone who you feel confident about going into a shootout. And yeah, it's kind of proven itself twice over now, hasn't it? Yep. Uh, I mean. Now we know. Now, now we know that he's going to save fifty percent of every penalties he he <laughs> that go on target. You know that doesn't even count the ones that are going to miss because people are scared of, of how good he is as a penalty saver. Let's move on to Houston because I think it's a much more uh, interesting game, and it's also a little bit fresher in the mind. We have kind of a moment early in this one where we had just had the Cruz Azul game that. Again, we went, we went in penalties. We didn't really dominate the ball. We didn't really go out and look like we were just going to be constantly threatening the goal. And then this one goes a little bit helter-skelter. You know, all attacks one way, all attacks the other way. And Charlotte FC give up an early goal. Uh, do you want to talk through this one? Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, it's it's... It's a goal where you can kind of pick out multiple um, errors in there, which are maybe you know non-obvious errors. Like we'll get to, we'll get to our goals in this game later, where the the errors are, are pretty <laughs> are pretty plain. But um, yeah, here you can you can note kind of structural issues. You can note individual player positioning, which is which is a little bit difficult. I think I think maybe something specifically important to, to mention with this in terms of the structure that we've seen from Charlotte uh, over the course of the season and, and how aggressive the press is, is just kind of how, how, how dangerous simply one player carrying the ball can be against the way that we play out of possession. Because you have a situation here where a ball carrier is able to receive the ball in their own third put a little move on a player and once he's beaten his man because of how aggressive man, how aggressive our man-oriented press is, all you really need to do is beat your man and now suddenly the space is, is acres. So you get, a, you get a run from a player which goes, you know, I think overall it's probably about 50 yards up the field going that diagonally from his own third it's, right into it's, our... It's the whole middle third of the pitch, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, he, go, he goes from it's pretty much third to third. It's the beginning of of, of Charlotte's defensive third, right before the D of the box. From him receiving it, it. And, and and not only that, but it he receives it on the so on on the uh, touchline on the right side, yeah. and then suddenly he's able to dribble it not only the distance of the field but into the middle of the field, and in doing that, he only beats one player, which yep. is the man he's being marked by. Um, which I believe is Kerwin Vargas, because it's that yeah. direct uh, meeting of the of someone in that area to uh, to his side of the pitch. So I think that is something that's important to point out with this, because all it takes in an aggressive 
man pressing system where you have all your ideas thought out if the triggers here and this is going to happen there and we're playing to win the ball and try and score like all that we're trying to do with our press is win the ball and score we're not trying to direct the ball in other areas and get turnovers by them playing the ball long it's a ball win press at this at this moment that that's what we're doing and so, that's all good in theory but when this happens where someone can carry the ball for long distances it causes real issues yeah, I mean, I, I want to jump in here just because one of the things that you talk about with the ball win press for people who may not be familiar, Kerwin Vargas, you, you know, we have to ask the question whether or not he is left too alone out there. There is a press that's designed to make people kick the ball overhead and hit it long. And, you know, this is something that I, I was very fortunate I learned from you, Ewan. And there's a, a press that's designed to trap people. It's designed to let them say, hey, here's a space you can go to, but when you go there, we're going to close you down, you'll be trapped. In this instance, this player beats Kerwin Vargas, who's not a defender. And he runs, like you said, all the way through the middle of the pitch into the center zone. And then he has a wide open ball, long ball cross. Our defense is playing super narrow again. Is a ball cross to their attacking left. It goes out to the left side. He's already in the box. We had this back when we played uh, New York Red Bulls on the narrower pitch where once they got in the box, we just didn't have the ability to shut it down. And that whole narrow defense just shuffles over and runs directly to him. And all he has to do is pop the ball back over the top to an on-runner in the back post, and the ball gets slotted home. I struggle with whether or not this level of press is something that is actually functional for Charlotte FC. And I struggle with when we see one player get beat like that, when we see 50-yard runs with the ball at their feet, followed by easy passes to cut you open. Is that is that a fault of the players or is that a fault of the system? And no one, unfortunately, no one really knows except for the coaching staff and the players. Because it could have been we told our line to stay back and we told the rest of them to go forward. It could have been we told everyone to go forward. And if everyone was supposed to go forward, we got cut out and it was bad. If we told our line to stay back, this is a risk you take. And unfortunately, it's a risk that Charlotte takes a lot. And it's a place that Charlotte gets cut out a lot. You and thoughts on that, that whole mentality there? Yeah, there's um, yeah, the, the, like I mentioned, it's kind of first talking about this goal. The errors are kind of all all over the place when you talk about it tactically. Um, the, the aggression that we play with can can cause these issues. I, th I think something else that um has been discussed as well is that recently we've gone to this system where we will play incredibly narrow with our fullbacks out of possession. Obviously, we're all familiar with the inversion uh, in possession, but now we are sacrificing space out wide and tucking those fullbacks in um, out of possession to afford the space, and that's how the cross happens here. That, and we, we've spoken about this before when, when this first arose and, and described why teams do it, and just to bring that up again, the reason why teams do it is because they're happy with that space being afforded out wide, because if you have the middle areas of the field packed, your own box with decent-sized players, you're happy for the opposition to be restricted and be given that opportunity to cross the ball because you feel confident about winning the ball in the air. It's it's a you know you're, you're giving them an area of the field where you feel confident defending the results of what they'll be able to do from there. That's mm -hmm. kind of, that's kind of fine when you're in a really settled um, situation defensively. It's not so great in transition defensive moments, which is what this no. is. Even even though it's build up play, it's still transition because it very quickly goes from high up the field pressure to defensively working in your own um, third. So I think that if we're talking about, you know, a system versus players thing, very much think it's system and very much think that this is something within the system which can be tweaked without overall losing the principles of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I would like to see from Charlotte more, actually, there's, I say one of the things, like it's not a very long list, uh, like win more games. I really enjoy winning the games. Uh, we do win this one. That's important to say. Uh, I want to see our lines be more connected. And you and you might disagree with me on this. 
but there's another chance that we should have been down two nil. Maybe we should have been down three nil. There's a, there's some arguments in there, but in the 25th ish minute, we get cut open down the wings again because. If you get the ball out to our wings, you're going to cut us open. That's kind of Charlotte FC's MO. And there's a really, really easy cut back to the penalty spot. <clears throat> Excuse me. From an on-running player. And it's a smart run by the Houston player. But it's made possible by a lack of staggering runs back. Essentially, as Charlotte FC floods back into defense, it's all in one line. It's all one charge back. And one of the Houston players just says, wait a minute. What if I don't go shoulder to shoulder with these guys? What if I just wait and stand in the space they run through and let my my player pass the ball back to me? So many goals in football come from people getting to the end line and cutting the ball back to, uh, to the center, to the penalty spot. It is the thing that is taught <clears throat> as like the number one passage of attacking play in the world. Beat your guy to the byline, byline, move in towards the post, get the ball back to the penalty spot. It happens in this one, and for me, it's far too easy. Whether our midfield line has to be more connected or whether we have to stagger our defensive line back, I'm not in the position right now to tell you which one of those it needs to be, but it needs to be something. You cannot leave this area of the field completely exposed. I can live with exposing your wings. Don't get me wrong, I don't like it. I think it puts a lot of strain on your defense. I think it makes good players feel like they're bad players and destroys their confidence. But I can live with giving up the wings. I can't live with giving up your penalty spot. That's that's bad. And if Jalen doesn't make a very good uh, sort of block, and if this player doesn't kind of scuff the shot... It's definitely 2-0. I, I would expect strikers to score from there. Uh, thoughts on whether or not that that Houston player should have scored? Um, I mean, it, if, if it does get a deflection, I mean, from recollection, the corner is given here. So I, I do think it does take a, take a block from Lindsay to stop that going in. It only just fizzes past the post. So mm-hmm. there's a chance that this is like just a really good finish that is blocked really well. <laughs> so yeah. there's always that. But like you mentioned, this is like a really, really good area to be getting a chance in. Like this is the area which you absolutely cannot. It's the area where any coach, no matter kind of what their setup is and what their system is, this is where we defend the hardest and do not allow chances. And this is what we are trying our hardest to do to create chances for ourselves. It's mm-hmm. the golden sort of zone. It's the, the the red zone, as it's known, kind of, um, with with some uh, teams. So it's it's very very. It's just very bad to be allowing a really good chance in that area, especially from something which, and it goes back to what we mentioned in terms of how this chance is created. A player beats Cohen Vargas carrying the ball. And that's how the space is created. And also one thing to note on this, Nathan Byrne, how he's defending in transition. If you if you get a chance to kind of go back and watch this chance, look at where he's going. He's moving directly away from the man who ends up crossing the ball. He's moving in towards the middle of the field. You'd think he was marking Privet the way that he's running in this <laughs> instance rather than his own man. But that's all by scheme. It's all by scheme. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, yeah, it, it's what we mentioned. And, and just as kind of a side note on that, if you ever wonder why, you know, Justin Merrim gets in the team over Vargas when Vargas is a more exciting winger, if you ever wonder why Brent Bronico gets in the team ahead of Ben Bender, even though Ben Bender's goals and assists for a player playing high up as an eight, uh, a better. One of the reasons why, at the very least, which I feel confident saying, we always talk about how, oh, I wish we knew what the coaching staff said to them. We, I wish I knew why they did the things that they do. I feel pretty confident in saying one of the reasons why those players get in often over the players that I know what fans want to see in the team, it's because in those one-on-one duels, they're just so much better out of possession. They're so much better oh, in the yeah. pressing stuff. And you see what happens when that is exposed. Like you want your attacking eight to be good on the ball. You want your wingers to be creative on the ball. But this is the stuff where as a coaching staff, they're like, you have to be good at this with the way that we play out of possession or else this kind of stuff is going to happen. Well, I think there's also the element there, and, and you do. I think you, you're really smart to touch on it. 
there's the element that Kerwin Vargas is not a defender. He's a young man. He's a forward-thinking striker mind out on the wings, touchline kid, right? And that probably adds a whole nother layer to the choice of Brant Bronico because one, Brant Bronico is the engine of the team. He has the legs. He will chase stuff down and he can use that physical prowess that he has to chase down. I don't want to call them failures to chase down the, the times where Kerwin Vargas is taken advantage of. You get something with his, his threat. You give up something with his ability to defend. So having Brant Bronico there next to him probably makes a lot of sense as long as Brant Bronico is there. And I think in this midfield, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, sort of his role and Ashley Westwood's role because Westy comes in, he's playing the six again. And I actually kind of liked a lot of what happened in the midfield. I know that we've kind of talked a bit negative here for a little while, but I do want to talk about the fact that I have not seen a lot of playing the ball ahead of a player. I haven't seen a lot of Charlotte FC play the ball into the space where the player is running into. And that's hard to do because it, it means that you don't just have to see the player and hit it to them. It means you have to see that player where they were and where they're going while also seeing the defense and where they are and where they're going. And you have to do all those checks in the same amount of time. Like you don't, you don't get more time on the ball to do all of this extra work. You just have to be capable and uh, able to do it. It takes practice and it takes a lot of skill. One of the things that helps with that is knowing where someone is going to go and where they're going to move. And it looks to me like Ashley Westwood sees where Scott Arfield is going to move to, sees where now Brant Bronico is going to move to. And there's still probably some pretty good questions about whether or not he can do the defensive back the field work. But I would be lying if I said we didn't move the ball through the midfield significantly more explosively than we have seen in the past, even if sometimes uh, those powder kegs blew up on us. Uh, thoughts about how the midfield performed and potentially how it, it impacted the rest of the team? Yeah, it, like you mentioned there, it's it, the, the Westwood playing as that deepest player um, in build-up uh, role is something that maybe, I know I've been lower on it than people have been generally. They, a lot of people think that this is the solution, whereas I'm a little more sceptical about it. And, and we mentioned this last week when talking about the uh, uh, the four one win, uh, where I, our midfield, you know, it was all going well. Progression was was great, and I mentioned the fact that we were just kind of being allowed to build up in that first phase. There wasn't a lot of pressure, and that's why Westwood was looking really, really good in that area, and our build up was pretty strong. This mm -hmm. wasn't. This game, this Houston game wasn't to that extent, but there was a little bit an element of that as well, whereby they weren't putting a whole lot of pressure on our first phase of build-up. They were happy for us to progress the ball up the field, um, understanding that, one, we want pressure as a defence, not to play mm -hmm. through it, but we want to play over it because we want to play over it and counter-press in space and attack space. And even though it's a very specific, well, not specific, but very kind of strange example, see our first goal in this game, uh, which we'll get on to, to, uh, you know, see why we want to do that, the, the, the outcomes that we want from it. So for mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons why they, and, and teams in general, maybe don't pre uh, press us aggressively, because it's, it's kind of what we want to then play over, play aggressively in the counter-press, play in space. But also... There is just the fact that teams feel a lot more comfortable once we build up through that first phase of us just having the ball and eventually it's probably coming back because, as we mentioned before, like I say, our automatisms in the final third, our patterns of play to create chances are not good. So teams feel very comfortable not pressuring us in our first phase of build-up. And that's maybe why sometimes our midfield will look very good in its build-up versus sometimes it won't. It's often very much based on the opposition we play in their setup rather than kind of what we're doing, I believe. So you you say this and there was a good there was a good meme that went around the internet 
And that was, it was a, it was one, I don't know, meme is the right term, but it was basically a, a, a picture of Lionel Messi looking over his shoulder. And it was just like somebody had photoshopped like a vast wasteland of nothingness. And it just said, Lionel Messi checking his shoulder for the MLS press. <laughs> because <laughs> because the, the timing of these things can be, I mean, sometimes they just don't come. Like sometimes teams just choose not to, to send the press at all. So it does matter about the sort of level of quality of a defense and a level of quality of a press that you're going to be facing. Ashley Westwood has definitely had more time and we are going to have to see whether or not he can do it and whether or not we can build up when when people do not give us that time. I'm going to move us ahead to uh, Kerwin Vargas. Again, we've talked about him in some relatively negative ways because he got beat and then he got beat. And then he made a fantastic run into really just the absolute killer area that if if the penalty spot is the red zone, this is the nuclear zone. Like, it's a fantastic ball in from Jalen Lindsay out on the right. Lands right in the spot that Kerwin Vargas should be able to tap home. Has a moment, hits it directly at at the keeper. Ewan, you, what, what do you say? Other than he should have scored. Yeah, it's, um, I think, and, and XG isn't brilliant at, calculating chance um you know the, the great how good a chance is all the time but i think the xg model that i had uh, looked at had this is exactly uh, a 0.5 chance so you know a flip of a coin type chance which makes it sound like not as good a chance as it is 0.5 for xg is very high <laughs> and, 0.5 for xg is insanely high yeah, it's and, and like you mentioned, it goes it, it goes back to your point of this is exactly the area where it is really really dangerous to afford a chance, and I don't know in terms of critiquing the finish, in terms of critiquing any kind of technique that Cohen Vargas uses. I should mention as well, it's a brilliant ball. It's a really mm-hmm. really good ball, but in terms of the finish, some, sometimes I think players in that situation it's just a case of you know focus. And just hit the ball, hit the ball as hard as possible. And sometimes placement doesn't come into it as much in those situations. How many times do you see a player miss hit the ball there? How many times do you see a player take their eye off the ball and it becomes a bit of a calamity? So it's almost like in those situations where the ball's coming to you, rather than you having it under control in a one-on-one situation. There's so much emphasis on just making the correct contact that the placement can go out the window a little bit. And I don't think anyone would argue that the contact to get on the ball is really good. But it's also directly the goalkeeper. Yeah, and anywhere, anywhere else, anywhere yeah. else on that frame, and that ball is going in because that exactly. at that range, at that range, keepers have no time to react. At that range, any save that is made by the keeper is dumb luck. Like you, you do not have the ability to see where that ball comes off of his foot and make a change. You make yourself as big as possible, and you hope that Kerwin Vargas hits the ball directly into you, and that's what happened. And it was very, very sad. Uh, I w- uh, will really quickly talk about the fact that, you know, Michael put into the chat that when Carroll came off, he, he gave Latanzio a little bit of shtick, made it very clear uh, how he feels about coming off the pitch. And Patrick Aguimong comes on the pitch and made it very clear uh, to, to Latanzio how he feels about going onto the pitch by going out and, and getting a much needed goal this is another long ball from Jalen Lindsay there's no build-up it's route one over the top Patrick Aguimong is bigger than the defender and he's gonna push the defender off the ball and take it and and be successful and that's exactly what he does he has a a duel with that defender they left him in a one-on-one situation Jalen Lindsay spotted it he hit the ball over the top it's a great bring down uh, it is well controlled and slotted home after rounding the keeper quite well. Patrick now has what three or four goals for Charlotte FC across all competitions. He's he's looking like a good player. You and a question I have for you is, and this is more of a discussion point. When is the time that a player is ready? Because physically, this guy is bigger than anybody out there. From an age perspective for a striker, 
he's not that young. I mean, he's very young, and he has a lot of time to develop and learn, but he's not 17. And he's starting to get things done. So from a fan perspective, should we be going, we want to see more of Patrick Aguimong, we think he can do it, or should we be going, this guy is showing flash-in-the-pan potential, but let's let him cook? I, th- I think there's almost something, there's two things in equal measure when it comes to young players in terms of, you know, w- when is a player ready? And also, what do you do when a player is showing flashes? They're maybe not quite there yet, but the only way they can really get there is with game time. So what what's the what's the push and pull of giving them that game time to learn certain things that they need to learn to be a productive player going forward? Because I think with Patrick Argeman, there's just obvious qualities there, like the size of him, the the fact that he can, you know, if any ball is played into space like that, he's going to be effective. Uh, his header against Seattle was incredibly good technique. That late equaliser, um, it is, you know, that that's a harder goal than it seemed, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. So there's obvious quality in anyone who's tunes in regularly to Crown Legacy will know that there's quality there and there is consistent goal scoring with a lot of great technique to go with it. This isn't just someone with a lot of physical gifts with his size and speed. He's a very technically gifted player as well. But I think his overall game needs a lot of polish. And that goes to my point. Like, do you keep him playing for Crown Legacy, which is maybe a little bit below what his absolute standard is at this moment, where maybe he's not learning so much for his overall game? Or do you kind of give him some minutes, give him some starts in certain situations and let him learn and let him polish his game a little bit more? The build up, you know, working in build up when the ball goes up to him, how to hold the ball up, learning exactly how to press, those kind of things, which are, you know, almost an aside from just like, oh, this player's great. You know, they've got really good technical ability. They've got really good physical qualities. He's almost like he's got to, you know, he's got to learn how to play top-level football, there's obviously leagues better than MLS, but top-level football in terms of the professional game of players who are experienced, played 10, 15 years, understand the nuances of everything. So if you kind of, you know, saying, you know, when's a guy ready? I don't think he's ready yet. But how do you get a guy ready is almost the yeah. question as well, isn't it? Almost, almost every time someone has become ready, they had no choice but to be playing and showed that they were ready. Yeah. And... What we're seeing from Patrick Aguimong, for me, is this is a guy who I don't think he's ready to take up really any mantle yet. Uh, I don't think he's ready to have the pressure on his shoulders of what, let's say, Karol Swiderski is carrying right now. I don't think he's there to be the man, but he's asking the question, in my opinion. And I don't even mean that he's asking that question to the fans or to Latanzio. I think he's asking that question to himself. One of the things that I struggle with is trying to identify the ceiling of a player. And when I look at Patrick Aguimong, I never go, that guy could one day be a world beater, top of the Premier League killer, right? But every time I look at him, I go, that guy could be one of the best strikers in the MLS. No question in my mind. He could be one of the best strikers in the MLS. And maybe he can go higher than that. I I don't know what his ceiling is. But if you're looking at him and saying, hey, here's this young kid. We think he could be one of the best strikers in the MLS. Give him the game time. Give him more time. Let him, let him pick up more, more slack, especially if games matter less, depending on whether or not we successfully make a run to the playoffs. Let him pick up that slack, chisel off the hard pieces, take the hits from him doing stuff wrong, and go into next season with him still being rough around the edges and not polished, but sharp and and having having been crafted into a better sta- uh, version of himself that you can polish later. If you believe that where he is is close to his top, then you, maybe you leave him down with uh, Crown Legacy and you just let him polish his skills against people who aren't going to break his ankles. Like Maybe that's what it is. But I am... I did not think he was going to come through. When I first saw him at Crown Legacy, I did not think he was going to come through and impress me the way he has. And he has. Um, I mean, not that long ago, we were talking about uh, Brandon Cambridge, 
right, who I still think is a fantastic footballer and has the whole world ahead of him. Where's Brandon Cambridge right now? <laughs> right? Was he another kid who got too hot-headed? I don't know. But I, I know who's on the field, and I know who's, who's showing that he wants to be there and is working hard to make it happen. Uh, really, really good goal from him. Calm, collected. Love to see it. Uh, the next thing you hate to see if you're a Houston fan. If you're a Charlotte FC fan, it was quite hysterical. Uh, <laughs> Ewan, where does this own goal rank in your list of, of greatest ever own goals? Well, uh, before we get into that, I'll just say what, uh, just one last thing on the Patrick Ajiman goal that's very quick. Um, oh, yeah, coaching, please do. Their coaching staff will be furious because that out-of-possession structure was not designed for Patrick Ajiman. It was designed for Karol Svodersky. There was no way they were affording that much space in behind with a tight marking system for someone like that. That was for Karol Svodersky so they could come short and get the ball. They'd be happy to get... <laughs> like, they will be furious that they didn't make that adjustment, whether they forgot to mention it, whether the players just didn't execute it. They'll be furious that that was allowed to happen because that absolutely would not be the plan for someone like Patrick Ajiman and would be the plan for, for Karol Svodersky. But that's, you know, that's that's an aside. That, that's, Wait, you know, you're that, saying... You're saying wins all of his aerial duels. Carol Trodersky was someone that they they would be willing to leave one on one. That was that was facetious. <laughs> Carol is not particularly good at aerial duels. <laughs> well, yeah, not not leave one on one, but they'd be happy to play him up close so that he can't receive the ball close. And if the ball, if the ball plays over the top, we'll back him not to get it. We'll, we'll be happy with that duel. Whereas Patrick Ajiman in a one on one duel with a ball in space. You know, not your best bet if you're a Houston defender there. But, you know, that, that's it, it works out for us. And, uh, yeah, they, they don't get that back. So there we go. Nope. Um, it's ours and we took it. Exactly, exactly. And then, obviously, with the second, like you mentioned there, in terms of the Pantheon of own goals, this is... You can kind of put terrible own goals into their own categories. You can put them the ones of absolute calamity. You can put the ones where someone, you know, has... has kind of overshot back, uh, back pass. You can get the ones where someone's maybe in two minds about something and they end up doing the absolute worst thing kind of half-heartedly and that ends up in, in an own goal. With this, it's the almost the, the casualness of it with the back pass of saying, you know, oh, we've just conceded, let's count things, count things down. I'll pass this ball back to my goalkeeper. And he stood about five yards away from where I was thinking he was going to be. Oh, no, the ball is in the goal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's almost like there's a casualness to this own goal. There's no pressure on the player. Mm -hmm. This this kind of exists in its own plane where it's almost worse than other own goals that you would put over it just uh, at first viewing because there's absolutely no onus on him to be forced into any kind of error. It's And, and this is, you know, this is obviously getting it, it seems harsh um because you know it, it we're being quite <laughs> critical of this but it is awful like the players involved will know how bad it is and maybe it's even you the went... keeper's fault because you go into this stuff with so much detail build-up wise the keeper has to be right where he is so this might not even be the player's fault who passed it back we don't know their you structures went... but it's awful one day one day man i am going to get you to go in two-footed i'm going to get you to go in studs up you're too kind of a human being. Uh, we we want to laugh at Houston. We want to laugh because well because stuff like this happened to Charlotte FC for so long. We kept getting bad deflections and dumb giveaways yeah. and and like it's about time that it turned around for us once. It's about time we got one. And I I will say when this happened, it immediately brought uh, to my mind, and I believe it was 2017, uh, Chelsea Football Club famously known for having been defeated by Charlotte FC had a preseason match against uh, Inter Milan where one of their defenders on the halfway line under very little pressure, just full skied the ball back to the keeper and hit the perfect ball all the way over the keeper, just over the tips of the keeper's glove and just below the bar. I mean, the type of shot it happened to Christian Kalina last year. The, uh, the dead ball that went in over Christian Kalina's head, it was that, but an own goal. And, like, this is up there. This is, this is the pantheon of own goals. It's not quite the, like, total chaotic, disastrous humiliation, but the this is amazing and we have no idea how it really happened levels of own goals. Uh, final, final thoughts on this one before we uh, step ahead and talk about Miami? 
Um, yeah, just in terms of uh, if anyone is is you know enjoys these kind of own goals that are built in with absolute calamity, own goals like this go back to nineties, eighties, seventies football. There's loads of them because the back pass rule hasn't come in yet, and there are players from very <laughs> far away from the goal playing it back to the keepers high because they can obviously catch it, and in many instances playing it back a little bit too high and scoring like the goal you mentioned there, the own goal you mentioned there. Just ridiculous 35, 40 yard own goals with the intention of passing it back to the goalkeeper for them to catch and it ending up going right over the head. So, yeah, if, if that's something that you enjoy, there's plenty of those available. Absolutely. So, we are going to go ahead because we, we move on again. We make the quarterfinals, which I think most people would have said was a very good run for Charlotte FC in this tournament. I think most people have said, you know, the quarterfinals is a hands-down success. But obviously, now that we're here, we may as well go ahead and win it, right? So all we have to do to to win this tournament, or at the very least, win this next round of the tournament, is go through the greatest player the world has ever seen. And whoever else they decide to field. Uh, we play Inter-Miami, not in, it, in the game we were expecting to play them. This time, we're going down to play them in the cup, and... You and Inner Miami is not the Inner Miami of old. No, not at all. <laughs> no, do you want to tell us why we're definitely going to beat the greatest player of all time and uh, Carol is going to show him who a real striker is? Um, I mean, I, I suppose the thing with this is that we all pretty much understand like the media coverage has been very, very vast. So we, mm-hmm. we we kind of all understand, you know, into Miami with Messi and what what it kind of looks like and the impact that he's had on that team and the way that, like you mentioned, he has completely turned it around. Players who were struggling beforehand are now playing, you know, obviously playing better with him next to them. He makes everyone around him better alongside being incredible himself. So we're all aware of that. There's maybe a more interesting thing to touch on, which, you know, that could be, you know, its own half an hour thing, but how Charlotte adjust their own lineup to play against this Inter Miami team. Because for all the changing that we've seen throughout the season of the Charlotte lineup, I think the last few games during this League Cup run has been about as consistent a lineup as we've seen all season from this team. It's rarely changed. It's only had one change here or there the last few games. And yet here we come into a game where you could forgive Latanzio for throwing the original game plan out that we've had and putting in a completely new one to try and negate, you know, the, the, like you mentioned, the the greatest player of all time, who's still one of the best players in the world and the way that he has uh, made everyone else around him play as well. So that might be an interesting thing that could come out of this game. I think uh, it would be a shock as well as ill-advised if Derek Jones doesn't play in this game. We understand that we have to keep an unchanged team when it's winning, but we don't. We don't understand that we have to that we have to keep an unchanged team when winning. But that, but that that is one of football's kind of. It's it's one of its cliches, but in a game like this, I think you have to play Derek Jones, and that is obvious. Why I would say that because we talk about Derek Jones's role in this team all the time of patrolling that middle area where Messi is at his most dangerous. Okay, so I, I want to jump in here because I just want to ask you this question. And that is, obviously, you put Derek Jones on because he has the ability to cover the most space. And Busquets is sitting there as well. We can't only focus on Lionel Messi. How many players are you man-marking Lionel Messi with? Like, is it, are you just getting, like, five people around Lionel <laughs> Messi holding hands, like, linking around him just to make a human shield away from him or what what is your what is your plan um i think you've you've kind of got a spotted man mark on him ready for when the ball is progressing i think when you get into the final third you have a man mark you have a man ready to man mark him in there but more than that also i think you're maintaining a strict block when you play against this team because it's Lionel messi and the runners off of him which has been really effective for them 
Um, so you have to maintain a strict block, communicate really well, understand when the runners are going from one man to the other. That communication has to be excellent. But to do that, you can't really dedicate a lot of players to a certain man marking assignment because the block has to be consistent. It has to be positionally assigned. So I would just have one player with an absolute man marking um, assignment for Messi and also good communication in terms of his scanning. All the best players are great scanners. Understand where Messi is scanning between the coaching staff and the team. Have someone dedicated to watching him, looking where he's scanning, because where he's scanning will be where they are targeting us and have the next player near in that area alongside Derek Jones, whoever that may be, to monitor those scans because that's where the ball's going to be coming. The player that he's scanning, have a half-man mark on him so that you can almost create a little bit of chaos there. But ultimately, you're putting together a plan where you have to accept that there needs to be some luck there. You need to have a player miss a chance. You need to have Messi hit the post rather than hit it right at the top corner. When you play against a player like him, you're trying your best, you're setting up in the best way possible, but you also need to bake in some luck that goes your way as well. And maybe the worry here is that we might have cashed in all that luck against Houston. But you never know. It's 90 minutes, isn't it? it it's it's 90 minutes and it's football. Anything can happen. Uh, I do think we are going to go ahead and start to wrap it up there. I'm excited to go play uh, Inter-Miami. I think that that will be a good a good test of what this team is. I think it will be good experience for a lot of the players on it. And I hope that we make a good show of ourselves and obviously win the game. I'm thinking 12 nil Charlotte FC. Sound fair to you? <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, if we can, if we can get that many own goals, if we can get a few early in the game. Own goals <laughs> like that, that would be really, that would be really set us on our way to a 12 nil win. I, I believe. <laughs> I, I, you know what? You may as well believe at this point in time, we're in the quarterfinals of a cup. Let's believe in the run. And on that note, uh, we do have some, some rather sad uh, news to be announcing. We did have an event on August 20th and we were going to be doing a live show where we would be talking about Lionel Messi, where we'd be watching Charlotte FC play Lionel Messi and enter Miami uh, in case you didn't know which one of those two was a bigger thing, it's Lionel Messi then Inter Miami. But because of this match, it does look like that will be rescheduled. So whether or not that event is going to go forward and it's just going to be uh, like a, a gathering for the crown cast or whether or not we're going to be rescheduling the event to still do the watch party as well as do the uh, podcast afterwards. We will let you guys know, but we are sorry to say that something is going to be shifting. And unfortunately, it's out of our control. This was scheduled by the league. So on that somewhat disappointing note, we hope you've enjoyed it. As ever, if you have decided to spend your time with us, we love you. Thank you so much. And uh, Ewan, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And we will talk to you again uh, next Wednesday. Goodbye. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.